Well, uh, you can turn to Titus 2, 11 to 14, if you haven't yet. Uh, that's where we're going to focus our attention today. Um, and uh, we'll say a bit about that here, just, just in terms of setting a tone for these four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Uh, historically, according to the practice of Christian believers down through the centuries, the Sundays uh, marking the, the Advent season are the four Sundays that precede Christmas Day. So in the four Sundays that come before Christmas, the Advent or the arrival holds a unique place in our gospel focus as followers of Jesus. And that's not just reflected in the songs we sing and the other liturgy that we have, but Advent is reflected in our preaching texts as well. Uh, so beginning this week, we're going to do what we have usually done during this time of the year, and that is we're going to take a break from our regular series of studies uh, in this case, we've been going through John, so we're going to take a break from our expositions working through the book of John and take these four weeks leading up to Christmas to especially focus on Jesus' uh, arrival. Uh, and, and we focused on the arrival of Jesus from different biblical perspectives over our years together. Uh, one year we looked at Jesus' coming from the perspective of the Old Testament, uh, passages like Deuteronomy 18, where the better prophet is promised. So we've thought about how Jesus fulfills uh, some of those Old Testament promises. Uh, another year we looked at that uh, same kind of theme from the book of Isaiah. I think we spent a couple years in the Psalms during Christmas time. We, of course, looked at the birth narrative in Luke's gospel, and, and we spent some time thinking about Joseph and his conundrum uh, from Matthew's gospel. One year, so, so we found ourselves in different places of study over the course of our years of, of Advent seasons together, uh, but always the main theme is the same in that we're celebrating the coming of Jesus, God the Son, into the world to be our long-promised Savior. And this year is going to be no different. Uh, we're going to consider the Advent, we're going to consider the arrival of Christ from some different passages just as we've done before, although this year... Uh, there'll be one slight difference in terms of our studies in that while we've often mentioned, mentioned it and even focused on it to a small degree, we, we've never taken the majority of our Advent season to focus more singularly on the truth of Jesus' second coming. Uh, so Christians down through the ages have, have focused quite significantly, significantly on the fact that, that in the Advent of Jesus, we're not only compelled to remember the fact that He's come, but we're actually compelled forward to think about the fact that He's going to come again and meditate on that truth. Uh, so because Jesus has come, uh, we're compelled to think about His coming again. And, and, and so over the course of these next few weeks, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take especially the next three Sundays, we're going to set the tone a little bit today, but over the next three Sundays, we're going to especially think about the things revolving around the second coming of Jesus. Um, and, and that coming again holds a central place even in our Advent uh, season of worship. So, so let me read this to you. This is out of a text on historic Christian worship. It's actually a collection of various essays uh, and, then, and then a whole lot of liturgy examples of, of elements that Christians have used down through the, the history of the church to worship. And there's this introduction to the Advent season. So I want to just read part of it for you. Listen, listen to how the author puts things. The season of Advent, a season of waiting, is designed to cultivate our awareness of God's actions, past, present, and future. In Advent, we hear the prophecies of the Messiah's coming as addressed to us, people who wait for the second coming. In Advent, we heighten our anticipation for the ultimate fulfillment of all Old Testament promises. When the wolf will lie down with the lamb, 
death will be swallowed up and every tear will be wiped away. In this way, Advent highlights for us the larger story of God's redemptive plan. A deliberate tension must be built into our practice of the Advent season. Christ has come, and we recognize the wisdom and their completion. And so we hear that, and we recognize the wisdom in structuring our own understanding of worship during this time of year around that kind of truth. We celebrate Jesus' coming at Christmas time, but that's not all we do. We can't just look back at Christmas time because there's tension. Jesus has come. But as we look around, we recognize the fact that there are still people ODing on the streets of our city during this time. Our city is so full of hopelessness. Right? There are still people being murdered by terrorists. The world is so full of endless violence. There are pangs in our hearts that while comforted by Christ presently, we've not been made whole yet. The pain runs deep and it continues. So Jesus has come. We sing joy to the world for that reason. Jesus has come, lived, died, rose again, ascended to the Father. Jesus in his coming has perfectly accomplished what is needed to secure our resurrection, new life, hope for the future. He's come and he's done all of that, but he has not yet returned to bring all his accomplishments to a final consummated glory. So Christmas time is a season of celebration, but Christmas time is also a season of tension and waiting. We're, we're not just looking back, but we're, always, we're also looking forward, recognizing that we're living in the, middle, in the middle ground. So between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, we're seeking to be faithful while we're waiting. And this reality is no more pronounced than at Christmas time because we do say joy to the world, the Lord has come. We sing that and we, and we say amen to that truth. And then we consider the final nature of our hope and we have to add, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So it says one writer, the Lord has come and he will come. And the life of the Christian church is located and lived at the intersection of those two advents. And so that's what, it, that's what it means for us this Advent season to consider the reality of the fact Jesus has come, but he's coming again. So we're going to take time to especially focus on truths about the second Advent of Jesus, the second coming, especially in the next three sermons. Again, we'll set context a bit this morning, but Jesus has come. He's going to come again. So we'll take some time in, in what Jesus says about his return from Matthew's gospel. We'll have a couple weeks studying that. We'll have a week studying what Paul tells the Thessalonian believers about Jesus' return, bringing them comfort. Um, and so, so we'll, we'll think about Advent in those terms. But before we get into those passages, what, what I want to do is I want to set the tone with the verses that we've already read from Titus 2, 11 to 14. And we're, we're taking these verses first uh, because the Apostle Paul in these verses really sets the living out of our Christian lives. He sets out our lives as followers of Jesus between the two Advents. So the advent of Jesus' first coming, or as Paul calls it here, the appearance of grace. And then we have the advent of Jesus' second coming, which Paul refers to here as the appearing of glory. And then between these two appearances, the appearance of grace and the appearance of glory, Paul gives instruction for how, how we're to live during this time of waiting. Uh, so, so we have some Christmas perspective this morning as we consider living in between these two advents, the appearing of grace and Jesus' first coming and the appearing of glory in his second. Well, what does it look like to have our lives incentivized by those two advents? Uh, so let's look at these verses together. Again, Titus 2, 11 to 14, the advent of grace, the advent of glory, and living in between. That's what we have uh, going on here. 
Uh, so first of all, if you look at verse 11, we have the first advent referenced in terms of the, the appearance of grace, the, the appearance of grace. Verse 11, I'll just read it again, uh, says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Uh, so we can begin with this word translated as appeared here. Uh, if we were reading this in the original Greek text, we'd notice that the verb appeared is actually the first word in the sentence. Uh, in English, we have the basic structure of subject, verb, object agreement in our, in our speaking and in our writing. So I ran to the store. Subject, verb, object, we have that in English. In Greek, that structure isn't there. Uh, but what does happen in Greek is that a word can be emphasized by moving it up to being the first word in a sentence. Uh, it's like an ancient form of highlighting or italicizing something. And that's what's going on here. Paul has started this sentence with the verb appeared because that appearing, which is in verse 11 and, and the word is used again in verse 13, that term is going to be something central to what Paul is speaking about here. And, and this word translated as appearing is a unique word. Uh, in Greek, it's the verb epiphino, which is where we actually get our English word epiphany. We recognize that. Uh, and, and it's a term that's used most often in ancient literature to refer to something more than just uh, something becoming visible, uh, but, but it's something physically significant in its visibility, almost startling sometimes. So, for example, it's used in Greek literature outside the Bible to describe the sun rising in a particularly majestic way, the epiphany of a sunrise. Uh, it's used in, in war literature to describe the sudden, sudden uh, startling appearance of an enemy who jumps out of an ambush position. The word is used to describe that. So, so it's a word that emphasizes the very meaningful and significant and, and, and even startling visible manifestation of something. And here in verse 11, we see that Paul attaches this unique term to the grace of God. You see that the appearing, the epiphany of the grace of God for the grace of God has appeared. Now, this little phrase, the grace of God. We're very familiar with that kind of speaking. This is language we, we use all the time. Uh, grace is an easy word to use. It's a Christian word to use. We're familiar with it. I talk, to talk about the grace of God is to talk about the reality that God uh, has shown great kindness to us in ways that we could never deserve. That's what grace is. It's unmerited kindness. It's favor that's extended to a recipient who doesn't deserve it, but may be quite desperate for, for the grace, for the mercy. Um, and that's what Paul tells us here is that this favor that's not deserved from God, it has appeared bringing salvation, bringing rescue. Um, so you may remember back to your English class where as part of that poetry unit, you had to learn about personification. You had to learn about how poets will sometimes use uh, qualities of a person to describe something that's not a person for emphasis. Uh, so for example... Uh, yesterday was leaf pickup day by my house, and we could write a poem about how before yesterday leaves blanketed the streets. Probably not a very good poem, but we could write that poem. Um, and 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 while we write that that kind of using that kind of language, we know that leaves don't really throw out a blanket, right? People do that, but it's personification. It's a way of emphasizing something. And Paul's doing that here with this word grace. Grace is personified. Paul speaks about the visible, perceivable epiphany display of the grace of God. So, so, so what does it mean that the grace of God has appeared? Well, Paul is using figurative language to make a reference to the literal coming of Jesus. Right? Jesus Christ in His coming is grace incarnate. God's grace became climactically, visibly displayed in the coming of His Son. 
Now, it's not that all down through history God's grace was unknown or unseen. Right? For example, the psalmist is always petitioning God for his grace and rejoicing when the Lord extends him grace. The psalmist appeals to God, be gracious, hear my prayer. He appeals to God in his trouble. The Lord is gracious and, and rescues him. Uh, we see that all through the psalms. Uh, so it's not as if down through history, God's interaction with his people has, has been a kind of grace unseen. His, his grace is seen in all kinds of ways. The parting of the Red Sea was an extraordinarily miraculous display of God's grace when he was rescuing his people uh, from Egyptian bondage. Uh, so, so it's not as if God's grace is historically unseen, but there's something unique here in that in time-space history, grace was personified. It came in the person of Jesus Christ. So, so here it is, Christmas time, and this is, this is the reason we celebrate, and that the birth of Jesus Christ, God's grace, was made visibly evident in the world in a way like it had never been before. Um, so we've just been studying John, and we hear John say things like, Jesus Christ came full of grace. So, so in time-space history, the grace of God was personified climactically. Grace came in the person of Jesus Christ, and, and it's in the physical visible appearing of the grace of God in the coming of Jesus Christ, that salvation has been brought, as Paul says here, that salvation has been brought to all people, verse 11. Now, that's not a statement referring to all people without exception. You have to be careful here. Paul's not talking about a kind of universalism here. Uh, we know that to not believe in Jesus is to not know this salvation. Right? Paul's clear as, as can be on that truth. When, when Paul says that the salvation grace appearance of Jesus has come for all people. He's not speaking about all people without exception. He's speaking about all people without distinction. Right? Um, we, we, we just jumped in this morning into, into this passage and we didn't really spend any time on the background of the book of Titus. Um, but, but what Paul says here is a significant thing considering the original audience that's going to hear this letter read. Uh, Titus is Paul's understudy and he's, he's ministering on Crete. Paul actually left him there to put what remained into order. We're told that in chapter 1. Uh, so Paul and Titus had brought the gospel to Crete, and then uh, people have responded. They've come to faith in Christ. There's this church forming there in Crete. Paul has left to continue his missionary journeys. Uh, he's left Titus there in order to do the pastoral work of making sure things are, are up and running properly and faithfully. He talks to him about setting elders up in the church, about uh, training people to follow, follow Christ, what that looks like. So Titus has stayed behind. But the people of Crete were not, were not the easiest group. Uh, and they were even broader, in terms of broader Greek culture, known for being not so good people. And in fact, one Greek word for lying is Cretso, right, which was coined because of how dishonest the people of Crete were. Right? So, so, so they got an immoral ethical quality named after them. You just imagine how that would make us feel if they started calling lying Portlando. It's, it's, it's kind of insulting. Right? But, but here Paul comes along and, and saying that the unmerited favor of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what do you think is going on in the minds of the, the people of, of Crete when they hear this, these Christians? Well, they've got to be thinking all people, all people, not all people without exception, but all people, all kinds of people, even people like us. Right? And Paul's saying, yes, even people like you. 
Right? This is the, the glorious truth of the first advent, that the grace of God has come in the climactic person of Jesus Christ, who through his life, death, and resurrection has brought salvation, grace, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of everlasting redemption, life. Jesus has brought this for all kinds of people, which we have to notice Paul has included himself in this when he uses the word us. We're all in this together, Paul's saying. We're all needers of this kind of grace. So there's no badness beyond the reach of grace that appeared in the first advent of Jesus. The salvation is there for all people. Um, as Jesus himself says when he, when he tells us that he didn't come for the healthy, but he came for the sick. So that salvation grace comes for all who will turn to Jesus. And no matter background, no matter depths of depravity, whatever it may be. And so we put all this together and we reflect on it. And, and we understand that we live as Christian believers celebrating the truth that in the first advent, in the first epiphany of Jesus, God's grace appeared in personal and climactic and long-anticipated form. God himself came to save people who don't deserve redemption. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time, the epiphany of undeserved favor. Now, you know, even as we hear that this morning, it's possible that God's grace can seem like a distant kind of thing to us. It may be more like a, a philosophical concept, maybe. It can sit in our minds as a kind of dusty religious theory, this whole notion of grace. It's a word for being extra nice, maybe, and it's good to be extra nice. Uh, but it's still kind of one of those nebulous religious type words for us, maybe, in our minds. And, and we come to a passage like this, and it helps us to see the bigness of what we really mean when we speak about grace as Christian believers. Listen to what a pastor by the name of Skip Ryan writes about grace. He says this, grace, what is grace? Is it a sprinkling of fairy dust, a warm, happy feeling? No, grace is a power that lifts you out of the domain of darkness and transfers you to the domain of light. Grace is God's magnificent power erupting in your heart and soul by his own intervention so that you move from death to life, from darkness to light, from hell to heaven. Grace is power that is embodied in a person, namely Jesus. This Christmas, we can be reminded that in the first coming of Jesus, we have grace displayed that is beyond anything merely conceptual or theological or philosophical. Grace came personally. So the Lord's answer to my longing, my hurt, my insufficiency, my hopelessness, the Lord's answer to my condemning sin, the Lord's answer to you is grace incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. That is not a hoped for future reality. That is an already happened historical reality. Jesus has come, lived perfectly, died on the cross effectively, risen victoriously, purchasing, saving, reconciling future hope, uh, that kind of life for any kind of person who will trust in him. And that's why we celebrate at Christmas time. Because we can face seasons of darkness. And let's be honest about this. The, the holidays are not a bright time for everyone, despite what the lights on the houses may make us think. Darkness can be very present in our lives, even especially over the holidays. And when that darkness looms, we can think to ourselves, I know I'm supposed to believe in a God of grace but I just don't feel or see any evidence of that in my current condition. No, the sorrow is really real. No relief is coming. I have confusion about what lies ahead and it's so heavy. No clarity is coming. 
The past hurt seems very debilitating. I just can't seem to get beyond it. I've appealed to God for grace and relief, and yet here I am, still with the felt weight of so much on my shoulders. Is He not gracious for me? This Christmas, we can hear the Lord speaking to us through a passage like this, saying, don't first measure my grace in the felt sense of your immediate circumstances. First measure my grace by the historically climactic advent of grace where I sent my son for you. In Christ, you have the one who rescues ultimately from the pit of darkness and puts your feet on the rock. It may not feel like it just now, but the truth stands that God's grace has come in a person and he will not leave you or forsake you. His commitment to you is proved not through a religious theory, but at a bloody cross where he secured an eternity free of weeping for you. He is grace. He was grace and he will continue to be grace in all that we need. And so, and so we're renewed in looking to Christ this, this season. The advent of grace. Right? He's come. So that's verse 11. And then as we keep going into verse 12, the grace that's appeared, it appears with, with not just a salvation function, but it appears with a present instruct, instructional function. You see this in verse 12. Uh, so in verse, if we start again in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Now verse 12, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. So the grace of God which appeared and saved us historically is the same grace that trains us in holy living presently. It's a reminder to us that, that Jesus comes and brings salvation, not because we've been good, but because we've needed rescuing. And then that rescuing grace doesn't leave us where we are, but it actually starts to teach us. It brings us along in the way of true life. So saving grace becomes teaching grace in our lives. C.S. Lewis references this when he, when he says that as Christian believers, uh, we, we need to be careful how we think about the goodness that we're longing for and seeking for in our lives. He says this, the roof of a greenhouse doesn't attract the sun because it is bright, but it becomes bright because the sun shines on it. And that's us. Right? We, we, we don't, we don't have, have grace because we've been bright. We've been in darkness, but we become bright as the light of Christ's grace shines on us and he instructs us in the way of light. And that's what Paul's speaking about here. This grace that, that has come, it, it starts to instruct us. It starts to train us. And it basically comes with two lessons here that you see in verse 12. Lesson one is put negatively. So in the first part of verse 12, this grace trains us to deny godlessness and worldly lust. So, so this means that, that the undeserved kindness that God shows us in the salvation work of Jesus at his first coming that grace comes to us, it's administered to us now, as we know, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it comes to us in the midst of our lives in order to teach us to disown and deny and refuse and reject things that are contrary to redemption life, that are contrary to the way God calls us to live. So, so instructing grace uh, comes to us and tells us to deny godlessness, we're told in verse 12, which is easy enough to define. Godlessness is just anything that's going in the opposite direction of God's revealed will. Right? Grace teaches us to reject what's contrary to God's revealed purpose and design. And grace also teaches us to reject worldly lusts. Worldly lusts are those longings or cravings that, that, that ultimately seek to satisfy a sinful appetite. So grace has this negative lesson to teach us, deny certain things. 
But then, as gospel instruction always goes, and we might just want to put a punctuation mark there, as gospel instruction always goes, we don't just sit with that call to deny, but it's also accompanied by a call to pursue the righteous alternative. So grace has a positive lesson to teach us as well in the rest of verse 12. You see right there that grace trains us in verse 12 then to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age. So we're denying the other things by pursuing these qualities. So in the present age, in the now time we live, we're called to pursue sensibility, which is just the word that's often translated as self-control in Paul's writings. So there's an internal element to this instructional grace, if you like. We're, we're trained to bring what drives our ambitions and actions, speech and motives into accord with God's word. Grace teaches us to pursue self-control. And then grace teaches us to pursue righteousness. Uh, there's an external element to, to this instruction of grace. The word translated righteousness is, is just the Greek word for what is just. So, so we're to live by acting toward others in a way that rightly exercises our moral obligation to our fellow humanity as followers of Jesus. So, so we've got instruction of grace which affects us internally, pursue self-control. We've got the instruction of grace that affects us externally, we act justly towards those around us. And then thirdly, we're told that grace teaches us to live in a godly way. So you see how there's not just internal and external here uh, reflected in the teaching of grace, but there's also this vertical element as well. Where we're to live a life of piety, to use an older word. Right? We're to live a life in right communion and relationship with the Lord. So uh, dependent in prayer, honest in confession, uh, persevering in obedience, filling our minds with the scriptures. We're, we're to live in a pious way under God. So, so the grace that saves is the grace that teaches. Uh, be, being dependent on the new life given to us through Jesus and what he's accomplished uh, historically in his first coming now presently calls us to live in ways that turn away from what's contrary to God and turn toward what it looks like to live a whole life uh, oriented by this new life purchased for us. It's actually it's very interesting to note that the word translated as instructing here in verse 12 is a different word than the normal term for teaching or instruction. Uh, the, the word Paul uses here actually functions as a technical term in Greek culture for the proper training of children so that they can grow up to be a productive and producing members of society. Uh, and, and, and that's what God's grace ultimately does for us in Christ. He brings us renewed life and, and applies truth to us in such a way that we're trained to be mature. We're trained to be a productive, mature citizens of the kingdom of light as God's children. So we're being taught by grace to grow up in grace, if you like. And, and again, we need this. Uh, and we need this reminder, not, not least of all during the Christmas season. I was, I was reading, I've been reading off and on a book by, a book uh, around the Advent season by Fleming Rutledge. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting book and, and some deep insights. I've enjoyed it a lot. It's just, it's just a book called Advent. But in one chapter, she makes this comment, and I ran across it this week. Uh, just in relationship to reflecting at Christmas time. And she says this, It's not easy to grow up. Maturing as a Christian means making sacrifices, delaying gratification, setting the needs of others ahead of one's own, pursuing distant goals instead of temptations ready at hand. In these stress-filled times, virtually all of us, as we get older, will seek relief by visiting in our imaginations a childhood Christmas of impossible perfection. 
These longings are powerful and can easily deceive us into grasping for a new toy, new car, new house, new spouse. Then she says this, our longings are powerful, our need bottomless, our cravings insatiable, our follies numberless, and sentiment and nostalgia can masquerade as strategies for coping quite successfully for a while. But because it is all based on illusion and unreality, it cannot be lasting formation. And then she quotes the poem, Very God begotten, not created. Oh, come, let us adore him. So what Rutledge is, is noting is that as we, as we get further into adult years, we, we can indulge in some fairly significant folly, hoping to revisit in a nostalgic kind of way presumed feelings of happiness from back then. Right? And, and, this, and this does happen. Now, now I, I, I notice it more often, I think, than I, than I care to care to admit it does seem like it's around us fairly often where, where, where we witness that new and exciting things are so regularly thought to be but will bring relief in people's lives you know if we just move there things will be better if i just separate from my spouse and find someone else things will be better if i just own that item then the feelings of peace that i remember having once long ago would return but that's not training in grace that's actually the path of folly the training of grace begins not in nostalgic history, but in salvation history with the appearing of Jesus. And then it trains us to keep moving forward, not looking back, longing for sensations of nostalgia when life was a utopia in our own imagination. No, we're looking back to the first appearing of Jesus. And what the historical grace of Jesus does is presently press us forward in transformational newness, grace upon grace, living lives that more and more and more reflect the present purposes of godliness that we're being transformed into. Indulgences are replaced by concern for godliness as we press on, even as things can be difficult. So, so Christmas time of all times, it's a season to consider that as Christian believers, we are forward-moving people. We're, we're being transformed by the power of God's grace to us in Christ. We're maturing in holiness, and we're striving for that in a self-controlled manner as God gives us help. So Sinclair Ferguson makes the comment, holiness is not an accident of our present experience. We're compelled and empowered by grace to actively move forward in what it looks like to live the new life that Jesus has saved us to live. And so we move forward also as we look forward, which is exactly what Paul says next in this section. So in, in verse 13, uh, we had the advent of grace in the past. We live with that grace as our teacher in the present, now looking forward to the advent of glory that's still to come. So look at how he, how he puts all this together. In, in verse, verse 12, we're instruct, grace is instructing us to deny godlessness in these things. And, and all this is going on. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So our blessed hope is the, is the happy, future, flourishing assurance that we have promised to us at Christ's return. It's a return that's going to bring eternal relief for all who trust in Him. It's a return that's going to bring the end of all weeping and mourning. It's a return that's going to bring the joy of Christ's eternal reward for our perseverance. It's a return that will bring perfect and complete justice. 
It's a return that will initiate the heavenly reality of a new creation where we will dwell in the resurrected physical company of all the saints and with Jesus himself an eternal shalom of an endless world without end. So we look forward to that blessed hope of Jesus' return. And, and so it's no surprise that that second advent will be an advent of glory. It will be the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So says one writer, this glory is not the mere glory of a sunset or the Grand Canyon. This is the glory of God. If the creation has glory that stops our mouths with its waterfalls and ravines and snow-capped Rockies and star-sheeted night skies, then the glory of the one who conceived and created it all will put it all in the shade. The Son of Man is coming with that glory. Jesus himself describes his return as flashes of lightning from east to west, doesn't he? And then that's the advent that we continue to look forward to. The advent of grace in the first coming of Jesus compels us to look forward to the advent of glory in the second coming of Jesus, which will be totally different than his first coming. When instead of coming as a baby, humbled in a manger, rejected by his people and murdered on a cross, instead, Jesus will return with the hosts of heaven's angelic warriors in royal splendor, riding on the clouds with lightning in the sky, and every knee will bow to him and say, Lord. And in the meantime, we live waiting, knowing what verse 14 tells us. That Jesus saved us not to wait idly, not to wait with with worldly lusts and ambitions occupying us, but to wait knowing that He gave Himself to redeem us. He, he paid our salvation from sin redemption price on the cross so that we wouldn't live for lawlessness, as Paul says here, but so that we would be cleansed as people who now belong to Him, eager for good works. Christmas time, I guess, is just time for reading, so I've got one more quote for you, but this one's from Aitken. Uh, he, he, he describes the Christian life in this way. He says, the two comings of Christ are like two windows in the school of grace. Through the western window, a solemn light streams from Mount Calvary. Through the eastern window shines the light of sun rising, the herald of a brighter day. Thus, the school of grace is well lighted, but we cannot afford to do without the light from either the west or the east. So this Christmas season, we celebrate the first advent, the advent of grace. And this Christmas season, we live in the tension of waiting. We live with the longing for the second advent, the advent of glory. And in between, in the present, we will pursue holiness as those who belong to the one who's come and as those who belong to the one who will one day come again in overwhelming splendor. So Paul incentivizes us by telling us, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how are we doing with the waiting? Read through church history, and oftentimes the season of Advent has been uh, has functioned in church life the same way that the season of Lent has functioned in church life. A season of repentance, a season of introspection, a season of recognizing our need to return once again to the King. And a passage like this brings us to that place too, doesn't it? I need to live like Jesus has saved me to live. And I need to do that not just because of what He's done for me, but because of the fact He's returning. And we can be compelled by that truth as we navigate the days of this holiday season.
Let's pray together. So, Father, we ask that you would encourage us by your word. We ask that the realities of what Jesus has accomplished historically and the assurance that we have of his return in the future would compel us to live as, as we've been safe to live. We're thankful that we have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us to give us the grace we need on a daily basis. And that that is not stagnant in terms of its purpose, but it is transformative as we grow uh, in, in what it means to follow Jesus, as we grow in holiness, as we grow in righteousness. We pray that this would be a season of growth for us as we mature in what it means to know Jesus as our Savior, Lord, and returning King. We ask this in His name. Amen.